John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Gowan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Pod617.com. As the gentleman said, my name is Chachi LaPrette. I host a Beatles show in Boston for, gee, over 20 years called Breakfast with the Beatles. And this is also Get Back to the Beatles, uh... Beatles podcast, along with my fantastic co-host, Mr. David Gallant, who, as the gentleman said, teaches a Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts, and our boss and mentor and spiritual advisor, Mr. David Yaz, the big boss at the Boston Podcast Network. We thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you. Our 50 years of the White Album exploration, we're going to be looking at album number two of the two record set. We have a very special guest in the room with us today as well. He's a dear friend that we met a few years ago at a Ringo Starr concert in Boston, Massachusetts, a first-generation Beatles fan, as am I. He's a musician. He's a memorabilia collector who has great Beatles memorabilia, and he lived and studied and performed in Liverpool and and earned an MA in the Beatles, Popular Music, and Society from the Liverpool Hope University, and he's currently working on a Beatles project, a book, so we'll hear hear about that in the future, I'm sure. So welcome, Tom Kelly. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Josh, yeah, I, I can't decide, you know, if, if I, I'm so jealous of Tom, whether I want to go and get that MA in popular culture in the Beatles at Hope University, or if I want to beg them to let me guest lecture for a term on, uh, you know, Tales from an American Beatles Classroom. I think maybe they could squeeze me in as an elective, huh? I think that would be great. Could you set that up, Tom? I'll, uh, I'll do what I can. Dave, <laughs> professor needs to get away from the kids. He wants to go. No, no, no. I would, I would bring them along. Oh, you'd bring, they're, such they, a they're, they're loyal Beatles fans, as you know, Chachi. Yes, that's true. And uh, they are loyal Beatles fans. And the White Album was a big deal for me uh, as a kid. When I bought it in 1968, I bought it at the Harvard Coop. And uh, boy, it was an amazing uh, record. And I have a, uh, a, Beatles, a Beatles White Album here, complete with the number. This isn't the one I bought. Because as we said in the previous episode, uh, you hang up the poster, you hang up the photographs, and next thing you know, the record is overplayed, and the photographs and the poster is damaged. But this is number A2346726, along with the poster and photographs intact. And I also have a copy that I bought at Strawberries Records many, many years ago for two ninety nine. Look at that, with the purple... Uh, label and then I also brought in this is this this gives us in the gets us in the mood. I bought the thirtieth anniversary limited edition CD that's also numbered. I always bring memorabilia with me to to get in the zone. Right, it's great Dave? for a podcast. Yeah, it's great for our podcast <laughs> listeners. The vis- the visuals are astounding, Chachi. <laughs> well, Seriously we, though, Chachi, let me let me yes. ask. Can I ask you the the, sure. the serial numbers on the albums were those tongue in cheek album sales by the Beatles or were they real? Um, well, had numbers nothing, that had, changed. It was real numbers that changed. They were. Okay. They did it up to a certain point. I'll give you some background. A first run cover is numbered between, below 2,250,000. The first 25 were sent to the Beatles themselves, although the Capitol Records president at the time, Stanley Gordikoff, took number five because he claimed he was the fifth Beatle. The Beatles ended up giving Ringo album number one. Zero, 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 one? Yep. And, was he, it? and just recently, yes. in his big auction, yes. he sold it. Yes. And then check this out. About a, two dozen commemorative copies with the number two million were printed for company executives as a special gift. The things the, the covers were printed at Queens Litho in New York, and an employee of Queens Litho, which printed the numbers on the album, made about a dozen with the number A, 0000001 for him and some friends. 
That's right. So those are out there somewhere. And the concept of numbering was the idea was the idea of the album jacket and poster designer pop artist Richard Hamilton. And so there you go. Uh, those numbers were for real. And if you have a numbered copy, I don't that know how much... That is actually true, yeah. It is true. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, I, you I, know, Richard Hamilton, we, we could call him a a, a, a British descendant of, of Andy Warhol, really, along with David Hockney. So the design with the number on there, almost as if it's a packaged crate, uh, would not really surprise folks. It would inform them if they think of, of that whole pop art phenomenon around that time. So it's... Uh, it's an interesting uh, piece of art in and of itself, including the numbering and what, everything you're talking about, Chachi. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we are talking about the White Album because it has been 50 years, and uh, Capital Apple uh, EMI released a uh, the remastered White Album, which comes with the Esher demos. And the Esher demos, that's an, that's an area of London where uh, George's house was, and his house was named Kinfons. And the Beatles met there and recorded these basic tracks before they went into the studio. So the new release comes with the great Isha demos, which are really fantastic. Uh, so, uh, and you guys have heard the Isha demos, and what do you think of them, David? Well, you know, I think it's a way that uh, even beyond what had been released before in the anthology series, which uh, may take some of, from the Isha demos, but these are really extended. And it's kind of that, like, you know, if I'm going to... Mm, reference the 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 second disc of of uh, let it be naked is that you're kind of a fly on the wall right and you're listening to these three guys because most of them don't include Ringo uh that you're listening to them just kind of jam their way through uh, a lot of these songs and you know it's years and years and years before the whole MTV unplugged phenomenon but it's really what the Beatles are doing there and it's 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 a great listen in that sense Tom what did the white album uh, for you as a kid was it where does it rank uh, as one of your favorite beatle albums what what is your favorite beatle album well uh, i have a soft spot Ooh. for uh, beat i have a soft spot, spot for beatle 65 that was my first beatle album and I agree um, with you on that after that it was Rubber Soul. And of course, these were all the American albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so those two, and then I had a cousin that gave me Meet the Beatles in the Beatles' second album. So I was almost up to date at that point. And, uh, you know, accumulated all of them. Um, but I really, uh, I don't remember when I got the White Album. It was before Christmas, so it wasn't for Christmas. So, but I remember listening to it uh, intently, but uh, the stereo equipment was so poor Frankly, I didn't even know there was an acoustic guitar and while my guitar gently weeps. Wow. I mean, you know, the, the fidelity was... Uh, so, but one little thing about the White Album, when it came out and in the winter of 68, just to show you how different the world was then, I can remember listening to AM radio, to WBZ. Yeah. And they're playing Martha, My Dear, on WBZ. Wow. And of course... None of those songs were uh, released as singles at the time. So all these different album cuts were being played on AM radio stations because they were all playing music. Pretty amazing. David, yeah. what was your favorite? You, uh, you know, Chachi would, uh, well, one question about the White Album. Sure. Does it still, I know at one point this was true, but with digital downloads that kind of skews our sense of, of, of album sales, right? Um, it, it, does this not still hold the distinction as the, the biggest-selling Beatles album? At one point, it did. 
It's an interesting uh, uh, question, one that I, I don't want to answer and be wrong. I, I believe at one point it did hold the, the, the number one spot in terms of Beatle album sales, of original studio releases, uh, that it held the number one spot, which is fascinating considering that it was a double album. It always cost more than all the other Beatles albums. Even when it was on discount, it always cost more. Um, so, you know, I, I was... Uh, you know, Tom mentioned the terms of the fidelity output of it. Um, I grew up listening to it on pretty good headphones. My dad, for a man of his age, was kind of an audiophile. He was he was he was a mechanical engineer. That was his that was his profession. And uh, but he got into the music scene and would record bands. So we had all of these reel-to-reel tapes around, and so we had great headphones with really good cables. And that's the only way I could listen to the album because my mom didn't want to hear it. <laughs> when she heard Revolution Number no. 9, what is this going on? What is this? So I would lie on the floor of the living room with the headphones plugged into the stereo. And so that's how I would consume the White Album. Um, over time, if you're asking me what you asked Tom about my favorite Beatle album, I think it depends on, uh, at any given moment, what I really remember and recall. I mean, teaching the Beatles for all of these years... From beginning to end, I really do appreciate Revolver, but I have a special spot for the White Album. I, I, I have it in my headphones when I'm out mowing my yard in the summertime, and I know where I am finishing that task on a hot day by where I am in the White Album. So it's, it's a friend, it's a companion, it whispers, it shouts, it, 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 it coddles, it, it does a lot of different things. But in terms of um, you know the American releases, my basketball coach in junior high would play the Beatles' second album as we were doing warm-ups before a game. You know, and I remember I call your name and everything sure. from the second album that was on there. So that has a particular spot in my DNA. Well, for me, my favorite Beatles album is Meet the Beatles because every time I listen, no matter what time of day, where I am, what I'm doing, it brings me back to '64 when. My, my older sister put the needle down on the record and I was just enthralled by the album cover and the photo in the back with George with his leg uh, and holding on to uh, another Beatles shoulder and the liner notes. But another favorite, right behind it, Beatles 65, that album killed. I feel fine, all those tracks. And just like Tom, uh, I grew up on the American albums and I cannot remember the time when I realized that there were UK records that were different. I don't remember any of that. And, and I'm great with the, al- the, the run titles on the, re- the albums, the American albums, but a UK album, I'm still confused. Oh, Chachi on your radio show, Breakfast of the Beatles, of course, both on WUMB and, and Seacoast Oldies, that uh, you have a fondness for something new as well. That too. And I love the album cover of Something New. So yes, I do love all those records, but the White Album is very special to me. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through album number two. It was the first release on Apple Records and uh, the plain white album cover held inside two albums of what? Rock, reggae, soul, blues, sing-along, folk, country, pop, and avant-garde. And that's going to be an interesting uh, track to talk about. Uh, when we get to it, Revolution Number Nine, and uh, we're going to start with, um, and you know, Paul called it the Tension album, but with the with the new release, they're trying to push the fact. No, the Beatles were a harmonious band. Well, maybe when they were all with their instruments in the same room, they were harmonious. But boy, you had Yoko infiltrating. You had Ringo taking off for two weeks. They had no idea where he was. They were begging him to come back. So I've always lived with the thought that. 
this was a solo album for all four, and it was them fighting each other behind the scenes, but boy, they're trying to revise all that thinking with this new release. You know, Chachi, I think that as much as um, it was often quoted that, that every generation gets the Beatles that they need, the White Album affords enough that whatever you're going through in your life, I'm going through a breakup, let me take the White Album with me. I'm in love, let me take the White Album with me. I hate something, let me take the White Album with me. Uh, it fits all of those needs, you know? And well, if, that's true. If I could add something, too, sure. as far as the White Album goes, I think it's probably the most adventurous album, you know, because, and we were just talking about the American albums versus the British albums. You know, I'm always going to think of Drive My Car as being on Yesterday and Today. Exactly. But you know what? I don't think it really matters because uh, from Sgt. Pepper on, when, um, you know, Sgt. Pepper is more of a cohesive thing and the White Album in its, um, the the fact that it seems to not have any common threads through it and that makes it what what it is. And then you have Let It Be and Abbey Road. Those albums are the same on both sides of the Atlantic. So the early ones, we can just listen to them more as, well, this is a, a great song, a great recording of a song we really like. It's okay to not know the running order. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not well, be you comfortable know, with it. When they put out the American box set, I thought it was a great idea, but they screwed it up. They, they're not the same mixes as the American albums. It's not, quote-unquote, authentic in my eyes and ears. But the capital package that they put together previously to that, um, they are the authentic mixes. You know, the, the, the American album uh, CD set? It was, a great, it was a great sales job to nostalgia, and I refused to buy in. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Professor David Gallant, the crank Suffolk for Universe. Tonight. No, he's not. And Tom <laughs> Kelly, and we have David Y on the on the uh, controls. So let's drop the needle down on side three. Here's a song that uh, will be sung for birthdays for many years to come. It's infectious. It rocks. It includes the chorus with vocals contributed by Yoko and Patty, co-written by Paul and John for Patty while celebrating her birthday in India. And listen, guys, if I say something wrong, I have two experts with me. You should say, Chachi, that's incorrect. So please do that. Don't be afraid. You won't get fired. And um, Wild Drumming by Ringo. Let's take a short listen to this opening song of Side 3. We know it, we love it, and we'll continue to play as we speak, as we go through the album songs of Side 3, White Album, I should say. Tom, birthday, where does it lie for you? What are your thoughts on this uh, opening song of Side 3? It's okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good opener. Now, when, you, you when, when your birthday comes along, does, uh, does Patricia play this for you? And... Maybe no? 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> 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 
been a lot of birthdays since then. Well, in my early but, Beatle, uh, early radio days, yeah. when it was a listener's birthday, you'd certainly play mm. that. Charles Laquadero would do that. Charles, I was gonna, I was yeah. gonna say this song always reminds me of WBCN, and you did the the pranks, you did the prank phone calls from correct. people on your birthday, and you would play, and whoever mixed, I don't know if it was you, whoever mixed the final little birthday thing, it just played those final chords of of the song, na 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 na, and it was a perfect with the echo, perfect way to end it. It's a great song. Gentlemen, what do you think? Professor? Well, you know, Chachi, you said, oh, correct you if you're wrong. You're not wrong about anything ever, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you. I, I brought along my, my trusty guide, what I call the Beatles Bible. That is your Bible. If, if, if anyone doesn't have it, they should go out and get it. This is Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head, really regarded as the uh, authoritative uh, guide, uh, song-by-song guide of the Beatles. Uh, the songs, when they were recorded, what was happening around, putting it in context, and it's a great it's a great text for my students. You know, a lot of college kids they'll they'll sell their books back to the bookstore at the end of the semester. They don't sell my books back ever, right? They bring them home for Thanksgiving. The parents are like, oh, let me grab that. Oh, let me look at that, right? And I say, according with, with this book, you will never lose in a trivia bar fight. Okay, you're always <laughs> going to win. What and do you acor- got in there? according to Ian McDonald, <clears throat> this song is sort of inspired by Paul. Uh, when they all gather to watch the first British television airing of The Girl Can't Help It. Love that movie. A, fantastic, a fantastically influential song, uh, movie for the Beatles, right? When they go to watch it. All those great rock and roll stores that they loved and revered. Uh, Jane Mansfield, right? Uh, Tom Ewell. So it's a, it's a fantastic film. Uh, prompted the Beatles to arrange this session for birthday so as to let them slip out to McCartney's house partway through in order to watch it in honor of the film's musical star Little Richard. This is McCartney's sort of cue with his vocals in the song is his his idol Little Richard. So a little bit of a tie-in there courtesy of our friend Ian McDonald. Great book too, Revolution in the Head. We do love that book. I think it's a great way to start uh, side three and you're there with the optimistic Paul and again the next track we go into (laughs) John Lennon with Year Blues. Love this track. Year Blues, another snapshot of what was going on in John's mind at the time. He had a great knack of doing that, unlike Paul, who had a habit of shrouding his personal feelings in, in, in metaphors and songs. But John put it right out there. The eagle picks my eye, the worm he licks my bone, he feels so suicidal. Compelling lyrics from a master songwriting, a songwriter. And I love the end when they just start to go into that groove and when he says he hates his rock and roll. Brilliant track by John Lennon. The world licks my bones, and then he goes into just like, a feeling suicidal, just like Dylan's Mr. Jones, right? From yes. Ballad of a Thin Man, the great Dylan song. And, you know, it's part of John's back and forth verbal parry and thrust with Bob Dylan, right? That sort of mutual love, hate, suspicion relationship uh, all the way to the almost present day with, with, with uh, Dylan's song, Roll On John, right? That great admiration that they had for each other, but also suspicion at the same time. So it's a great way for people to, 
you know, uh, get hip to what Dylan was doing while the Beatles were doing it. Uh, Ringo and the anthology recall, recall this is one of the great together moments where they went into one little studio where they had all been in separate places recording, but they were all together for your blues. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's really a great moment. And it, again, it gets down to the bones. It's dirty. It's rough. It's fantastic. Yeah, I love this song. And when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, my God, John's going to kill himself. <laughs> Tom, what do you think about your blues? Fantastic track, right? Well, because this is um, uh, the line sometimes between blues and rock, you know, get get a little blurred. Right. But John Lennon clearly, um, you know, saw himself as the rocker in the group. Um, and so this is kind of his music. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly... Um, you know, uh, it's it pays homage to all the other blues rock songs that came before it, but it's his own, and another great vocal performance. And you go from this paranoia of John Lennon, and you go back into a Paul track. <laughs> and this one, I've always enjoyed this track. I thought it was a great song. It was written uh, in India after going to a Maharishi lecture on nature, and it's called Mother Nature's Son. Paul McCartney, again, placing us in a space, much like he did with Rocky Raccoon in the Old West. He has the ability to put us right beside a mountain stream. When I hear that song, I can vision, I can see it in my head. And uh, again, here we are with a Paul song, this time placed in between two of John's, what I like to call rock toxic tracks. You have Year Blues, Mother Nature's Son. Beautiful song. Gentlemen. Uh, well, according to our friend, we've previously mentioned Ian McDonald, um, inspired by a lecture given by the Maharishi. So, uh, again, living in the moment and taking advantage of what it is that they were being guided through by the Maharishi and some of his, uh, well, copying off another Beatles lyric, words of wisdom, if you will. Uh, they weren't completely rejecting whatever it is that they were learning there, and, and especially McCartney took what was going to be good for him, but wasn't going to become an acolyte, wasn't going to become a devout follower, if you will. And um, so I think uh, part of it is, again, linking to his uh, association with nature, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I think that uh, we see this later on in his life with his concerns for the environment and and uh, Linda's work about vegetarianism and everything else. Uh, and it's a, it's a very uh, in-tune song, if you will. It might be even environmental, if we dare say that. 
well, Tom, this well, isn't one of the tracks that was that would have been dumped from the White Album, right? If it was a one-album set. Well, probably not, or it would have been on uh, on a on McCartney, uh, McCartney solo album. Sure. And the thing too that I think um, is interesting about it, I um, if this was um, partly inspired by the Maharishi, you know, speaking to them, uh, it could be that Paul McCartney was taking. A, things that resonated with him because where he grew up, at least the main place, the Fortland Road uh, house uh, that everybody thinks of, where he lived the longest in Liverpool, at the time when he was growing up there, it was fairly rural right around there. Uh, Paul didn't live that far from where John lived. Neither of them lived anywhere near the city center. So they weren't really urban guys to begin with. George and Ringo lived much, much closer. But so Paul already had uh, this, um, had experience with nature and with the outdoors. And then, of course, you see it in his later life of the farm down south of London. And of course, all the, all his uh, experiences up in Scotland. So great song and has a great version of it on the, on the anthology mm. album. And as I said in a, a minute ago, it placed in between two John Lennon songs, Year Blues and this one, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Pretty loud John Lennon rock and roll, the Fantastic. longest, the longest song title in the Beatles catalog. Apparently, John saw a cartoon of himself with Yoko on his back, digging his her claws into him. <laughs> but was it his drug habit that the monkey he's talking about? It was he singing about Yoko, the single longest uh, Beatles album title, and lots of cowbell. Uh, Tom, you know, your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, did, well, that, well that's that's. <laughs> That's for John Lennon to have known and for us to wonder about. Yeah, you know, know no, no, I, yeah. I, I think just enough cowbell. No need for more cowbell. <laughs> I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> or, or handbell, as they, as they call it at that point. Just a, a great, great song. I, I referenced before uh, Mowing the Lawn. This gets me through that last stretch when I know that, you know, there you go, David. Uh, what's happening after that, when I finally finish it off and I put everything in the bags is I'm, I'm going to get the colds going and it's flank steak and corn on the cob at the right time, right? Uh-huh. And uh, so it's fantastic. Now, I love George's assessment. Well, that song, you know, it was something that the Maharishi said. Uh, except for the bit about the monkey. And I'm thinking, yeah. well, that's, that's the whole he rest of say, the song, George. Right? It's such a joy. Right? It's such Tom? a joy, and we all got something to hide, you know, except for the bit about the monkey. And, you know, John has said, well, you know, that could have been a reference to Yoko for those who were afraid and racist, would refer to her as a monkey. And, uh, uh, but damn, it's just a great rocker. I mean, when it goes into that bit, when you get Paul's bass, that bridge into the, into the last bit, it's, it's fantastic. It's a, it's and this a is one that's pretty different from the Isha demo. So, oh, I yes. mean, they really 
found a sound mm-hmm. to go with this song. I wonder if Yoko was offended when he he that John possibly wrote uh, the monkey being her. <laughs> oh, I, I think she would have taken that as a as a, a as compliment. A, oh, absolutely, absolutely, because he was doing it in a way with like you know, f you to all of you who are yeah. saying this. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and certainly the two virgins album wasn't uh, was coming along soon, and they had yeah. nothing to hide well, on that. Yeah, yeah, we have to cloak this uh, podcast in a brown paper wrapper. We're <laughs> gonna get there. Hi, everybody. I'm Chami Perel. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Boston Podcast Network. How would you like your own podcast? The Boston Podcast Network can produce one for you. Whether you're a lawyer, financial advisor, business owner, or really any kind of professional, you should have your voice heard through this exciting new medium. A good podcast is more powerful than traditional advertising. If a prospective client hears your podcast through their earbuds, you're already in their head, literally. Pod617.com will help you deliver a message and build relationships clients and centers of influence will delight in being a guest on your show go to pod617.com to start planning and in the meantime listen to the great shows they've already produced the irreverent bitchless bride podcast the hilarious show known as shawshanked and the wild trip through the paranormal that is Monsterland. be part of the pod revolution visit pod617.com in pod we trust now the next track is probably my favorite song on the White Album. Well, that's that's. Well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Here it is. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. You made a fool. Love that song. It's about the Maharishi. It was supposed to be Maharishi. The lawyer said you can't say that. So sexy Sadie Maharishi. And uh, my favorite song. And you know what I love about the song is Ringo's drumming. I'm playing air drums on all these songs. The masterful use of the hi-hat. Ringo is just fantastic. Paul rules on the piano. Backup vocals. I think this song uh, runs, uh, you know, all cylinders is just kicking in for this track, Sexy Sadie. John. To our listening audience, you're, uh, we apologize. You are missing quite a sh- uh, an air drum show that Chach has been putting on, especially you the know, last few tracks. You know, I do play the drums. Tracks. I have a Ludwig <laughs> kid at home, Tom, and I'm available to join a band. Because I know Tom's in the band. Nice. So, gentlemen, what do you think of Sexy Sadie, Tom? Always been a favorite. You know, again, I really like John Lennon's vocal, even if it wasn't written initially about the Maharishi. Mm-hmm. It's still a very original song. And um, it's also, it kind of still harkens back to the kind of music that John Lennon likes. It's it's a little 50-ish, you know, with yeah. the, you know, you've got the basically a four-chord progression that keeps going around in circles, but it doesn't get boring. The background vocals, really, you know, yeah. interesting, as they usually are on Beatle records. And this, this song's in a category for me, like, 
I, I can play this song every show on the radio because I love it so much, just like I Feel Fine. It's one of those songs I never, ever, eight days a week, I Feel Fine, Sexy Sadie, I can play it every show on my radio, every, every time on my radio show, it never gets old. Professor. You know, I, I think it sounds like that they're having fun with the song. What strikes me, Chachi, in terms of something you just said, is out of how many songs total on the White Album? 33? 38, 33, I don't know. 33, this is your favorite. Yes, it is. And so I'm wondering what... What are you, insulting me? No, no, no. (laughs) What's your favorite? I'm trying to figure out what we call your decision calculus. What what are you using to come down that this is your... It's It's your heart. heart. It's my heart. Okay, so this speaks to your heart. I understand. Okay, all right. So then it's beyond that, it's inexplicable. It speaks to you. It does. Uh, yeah. All right. It, at a very, at a very uh, important internal level. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so, All right. So what is your favorite song on the record? I suppose <laughs> I should ask each of you. Uh, you know what? That's, that's a difficult one. And I don't think Changes, we're, right? I don't think we're there yet. Yes. Okay. Oh, revolution number nine. Oh, Tom, well, what? crickets? <laughs> crickets. We get crickets. Okay. All right. Okay. All well, right. maybe at the end of all this, we'll talk about favorite songs uh, <laughs> off the album, but, uh, Tom, anything? Well, I think you already spoke on Sexy City, yeah. right? Okay, now like let's it. go to the next one. This one is crazy. The biggest, loudest, badass song on the album. The Beatles could rock and they proved it. Unfortunately, embraced by Charles Manson, <laughs> that douchebag. And uh, we had no idea what to think except to, you know, let it play. Here we go. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. What do you say, Chachi? I mean, what do you say? For all the for all the rockers and metalheads I grew up with as a teenager who thought the Beatles might have been too soft, this was their Beatles song. This, this was, was it. it. This was it. Is there a Sex Pistols without Helter Skelter? I mean, I listened to that song and I'm like, it, some people say Come Together was the invention of heavy metal. This is heavy metal. This, you know, this is heavy metal before there was <laughs> I, heavy metal. I, I got to right? tell you, John Lennon said that Ticket to Ride was heavy metal. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? I was about to and, say that too. And, uh, I mean, uh, Paul's objective was to out-who the who. And he said this. This yeah. is what our... Because when they were breaking decibel records, he wanted them to outdo them. And, of course, this is just a snapshot. I mean, this is a 12-minute jam, thrash, drunken, distorted guitars. It's it's punk. It's rock. It's ACDC before that. It's, you know, you know Robert Plant, you want to listen to what it should sound like here. Listen to this song, right? It's... It's it's magic, it's mystery, it's thrash, it's all of those things, and it's uh, uh, you know Lemmy of Motorhead, Lemmy Kleemeister. <laughs> That's right. Loved. I mean, well, he was a as a kid, he was at the Cavern, right? Yeah. So he loved the Beatles, like Ozzy Osbourne. Kids love the Beatles. This is their moment for the Beatles, right? And it's uh, you know, 
Our friend Ian McDonald hates it, which means I love it. He hates it? <laughs> he hates it. Well, I will tell you that sometimes I find it hard to play. In. See, in Boston, my show runs fairly early. So playing this song... Way like, too effing yeah, early, Way Chachi. too early. Uh, so sometimes playing this song is like, oh, wake up. But Tom, your thoughts on Health to Skelta? It's an amusement park ride. That's what they're talking about. Uh, right, the actual, yeah, the name of the, the, uh, the ride. But, um, and again... So with, with people like Paul McCartney or John Lennon, they just need something to write about. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's sort of writing about that. He does describe it and get to the topic, go back to, you know. Yeah. So, but I don't think that was really his, his main motivation for writing the song. It was to have something uproarious. Exactly. And, no, uh, no, we were talking about a giant slide ride. Like, right. like, like I, when I was a kid, I went to Lincoln Park near Fall River, Dartmouth, <laughs> and you got on a carpet and went down a huge undulating slide, right? Is right. that sort of what we're talking about? I think, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, yeah. in Blackpool. Yeah. Yep. You know, which for people on the on the North Shore, so it would be like going to Hampton Beach or <laughs> Salisbury, right? <laughs> See Blackpool lights, yeah. yeah. And so, um, but yeah, it's another good example of at various times, he, he's looking. Uh, Park. He's looking at the Beach Boys. Want to outdo the Beach Boys? He's looking at the Who. Want to outdo the Who? You know, kind of. I don't think in a paranoid way. I think he was so competitive and wanted to just show that they could do yeah. anything. And yeah. so there's everything on this album, which you may like it for that, or you may not like it for uh, that. Unfortunately, you know? Chachi, as you've mentioned before, it's kind of the signature. According to Vincent Bugliosi, the signature Charles Manson moment, right? right? Well, he took it as a call to arms, but again, it's just an amusement park ride. And boy, does this sound great on the remastered version of the record. It really does sound fantastic. All the songs sound great on the new remastered package. Think of it as a 12-minute jam, too, yeah. right? Is that song 12 minutes long? Uh, it, originally. Oh, originally, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry to jump in once again. Sure. Um, Tom mentioned this. I, I think you alluded to just the range. On this album, mm. it, it's not, it hasn't hit me until just listening to it tonight. And I'm sorry, I'm going to leave it to you guys, the experts. But how does a band do Helter Skelter and Obla Di Obla Da on the same album? I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It is it's amazing. amazing. Well, it's, it's almost it, like they yeah. were a jam band and people are shouting things from the audience say, I bet you can't do a country song. I bet you can't do a blues song. I bet you can't do a children's <laughs> and it, song. And, I bet you can't and do it all works together. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Right. It really is. And then it goes into perhaps my favorite George song on the record. I love playing this song on the radio. Because not a lot of people do, and I love how it just relaxes you after that ride, that Helter Skelter ride. And it's a beautiful song written by George uh, about God. Beautiful track. Long, 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 which ends side three. Gentlemen, talk to me about this song. My, well, Savoy Truffle's great too, but long, 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 it's just like floating down a stream. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> turn off your mind and float downstream I am. Uh, from Tomorrow Never Knows. I I'm going to quote our friend Ian McDonald here, and I think it, it does summarize it beautifully. <laughs> After the ponderous while my guitar gently weeps, the nasty piggies... And, and the space-filling Savoy Truffle, sorry, Chachi. At last, the real George. 
So he liked this one. The real George. And in some ways, uh, you know, there's a there's a whisper to this album that can get to quote a former uh, Chachi. Do our wives listen to the podcast? No. Okay, thank you. To quote a former girlfriend, it's, it's a it's a it's a comfortable comfortably spooky song oh. by George. That's cool, right? Very uh, nice. You know, uh, easier to listen to than than uh, uh, well, Blue Jay Way or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a, you're right. It's the perfect emotional segue from Helter Skelter. Brilliant song placement, Tom. Yes, and and another thing about this song, this is another one of those ballads that has big Ringo drums right. in them, like A Day in the Life. Right. And, I mean, Ringo may not have been the first person to put in big drums. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, isn't it, A Whitish Shade of Pale has some big drums oh. in it for a, you know, for <laughs> mm-hmm. a ballad. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think they, they certainly made use of his uh, musicality playing drums. Who's going to be Ringo's friend in the moment of need? George. Oh, yeah. Yep. It ends beautifully with the Ringo crescendo, and I love that. And that's how we close side three of the White Album. Boy, here, what a journey so far. And I got to tell you, when I was a kid, and you too, I'm sure you you experienced the same thing. You were just like blown away by the entire package, just like David White just said. A little bit of everything. The DNA of that album, uh, is uh, the White Album, is pretty amazing. Well, thank you, Tom Kelly, for joining us. Professor David Gallant, who teaches the Beatles course at Suffolk University in Boston. Uh, David Yaz, our spiritual advisor and leader. My name's Chachi LaPrette. I host Breakfast with the Beatles on the WUMB radio network, 91.9 FM in Boston, every Saturday morning and every Sunday morning on the Seacoast Oldies Station, 92.1 and 97.1 in New Hampshire and Maine. Today's episode is brought to you by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service, Boston Podcast Network. Tell your friends, subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. Get back, Jojo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.